is Hannah Besslick and I'm here with the wonderful Daisy Thurston Gent. Hello Daisy, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm actually pretty, pretty darn good. Hannah, how are you? Yeah, I'm alright actually. It's getting warm, the sun's coming out, I just feel a lot better for being at this point in the year. Yeah, it was hot but also raining mm. earlier. Um, it's like sweaty weather. Yeah, I wore uh, one of those jackets which has a fleece lining mm. Um, mm. and is kind of water resistant, Yeah, uh, which I feel like I am. Just about not just about resistant, not waterproof. Skin is water resistant. I yeah. would say you're just as well. I felt like a duck, naked. but oh. with like a fleece liner. Yeah, you know? so too hot, too hot <laughs> for it all. Um, yes, I'm very good. And we actually uh, an update since last time, I guess. Um, Daisy and I have started a radio show, so we've been working with Cambridge 105 Radio doing a show specifically called Queer Cambridge. And that's a big thing. It's a new thing for us, yeah. actually. It's kind of and a new it, thing for them. And a new thing for them. They didn't have a, a sort of queer specific show, and we've been doing it very local about events that are going on um, within Cambridge itself. I'm doing that news, and uh, Daisy does an amazing catalogue of music, all by queer artists, which is takes uh, ages to put together. And I think it's, I think it's great. It's really In good my fun. It's, humble a, it's a very different. Uh, it's a very different medium to the podcasting. Yeah. Um, and we talk about uh, local events in Cambridge and we get uh, we have a partnership with a, a journalist, mm-hmm. uh, Debbie Luxon, who has kind of her finger on the pulse of Cambridgeshire. Finger, um, finger on the pulse of Cambridgeshire. So she works as a community reporter. Yes. Uh, and has loads of contacts and knowledge about what's going on in and around Cambridge, especially to do with queer. Yeah, queer interest. Um, yeah, with a queer interest. So I think it's a it's a new thing for us. And actually, we've been kind of doing it for a while and had been working out whether to take a break from Radio Daddy. And so this is going to be our last episode of the season. Um, and I think, I mean, I guess I should also explain what the show is. This is a show about uh, queer culture, history, and um, also about queer people. And we're kind of trying to, we've been trying to research and uncover the queerness in everyday topics as well as things we've been taught before that we never knew were queer. Mm-hmm. Um, we grew up in school when Section 28 was in place, which meant that our teachers weren't allowed legally to teach us about queer people or queer topics. So this is us kind of like re, re-educating ourselves. Yeah, rebelling and re-educating. Rebelling and re-educating in our middle age. <laughs> you know, when it's firmly safe to do so. Yeah. Um, but we've got a whole episode today. I've been researching a topic that I really enjoy for the last episode. Yep. I thought it was really good fun. Uh, this isn't to say that it's going to be the last episode ever, but it's definitely the end of season one. Yeah. We're going to take a good break over summer. We may come back to you with a different format or the same format. It'll be yeah. interested to see if and there's the... any other way you'd like to hear it, actually. Definitely. And in the meantime, you can listen um, to us on, on Queer Cambridge um, mm-hmm. and listen to a bit of music as well. We obviously do talk about... Um, kind of well-known uh, gays in the community we kind of have a section that is called the happy birth gay section and so we call out historical figures um as well as people who are in the community now yeah so we we do some like i think the music as well it's a good way to be introduced to new music that you may not know about from artists that you may not have heard from up and coming or even older artists who've had their queerness erased so yeah. we heard last week uh, or actually this week um on the radio a very well-known song i can't remember what it's called uh, it's my party it's by my leslie party gore by leslie gore you know it's my party and i'll cry if i want to very famous song i had no idea leslie was queer um she was a lesbian and is a lesbian she's still alive with her partner who knows maybe <laughs> uh, we're gonna find that out just right now um her queerness was we we feel 
from a kind of public perspective was erased but actually in in her interviews and stuff she says that it was never kind of a big secret it, she was out at work doing mm. her work but you know yeah. to the public in the public eye it was kind of seen at the time as not something that would be good for a career yeah something that you just didn't discuss because you you might be um susceptible to to threats you know death threats sometimes a lot of lgbt mm. artists were forced who were outed early yeah. in their career particularly um you know in the the 70s the 60s um even into the, you know the 80s and 90s would receive you know abuse and um, some of them even had to go into hiding and things like that. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't all that common to um, to come out. So those artists who we do know as as very prominent gay icons from the music industry, you know, they had they had a pretty hard time, and they yeah. were um, kind of amongst the uh, the minority at the yeah. time. Um, and so Leslie Gore is a is a prime example of somebody who would have had to kind of you know those who need to know know, and the family and friends know, um, and I'm, I presume all the partners know. Uh, yeah. but but it, you know no one else between them. yeah and like some fans would but on the whole it was kind of you know under the radar um mm. anyway but you can listen to us on on, on mixcloud Mix actually which means that you even though they don't have like a listen again feature on cambridge 105 radio we do have mixcloud and it's uh queer cambridge 105 um yeah got all our songs on there we yep. try to put a little bit of information about what songs are included in the show so you can find them if you want to just scroll along and listen to that but it's also good to hear some of the, some of the news. Um, we're still still getting used to it, um, so you know, be nice. Listen back. Um, but I do think it's um, it's very exciting, and if you want to hear our rants and natterings, then you can hear us there. And so it is a different format. Um, today's episode of Radio Zaddy, we uh, have both independently researched our topics, um, and neither one knows what the other one is going to talk about. Exactly. We may have some sneaking suspicions, but mm. we, in theory, do not know, and it will be brand exactly. new information. And with that, I'm going to ask you, what do you think I'm going to talk about this week? I have no idea. I know you're excited about talking about it. So I'm, I'm like, very excited. So this could this be for the anything. first time ever, I tried to send like a sneaking picture being like, what could I possibly be looking at? Oh my goodness. But in no way, I don't, I don't think at any point could it have uh, been worked out what it was going to be. Woodwork? Um, no. Um, no. It was just a screenshot of some, some tabs. That all just said like queer, gay, queer, gay, camp. queer, camp, campness. So actually, I'm going to be talking to you about gay robots. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so I love robots. Yeah. Um, and I love gayness. Uh huh. And so I actually, basically, it was kind of triggered by this bit of stand-up by this uh, comedian Matteo Lane, who talks about how he is convinced that R2D2 and three C C3PO mm -hmm. are gay, and yeah. um, that C3PO is a gay man. Going, oh my goodness. Um, and the R2-D2, I think he goes a bit far. I don't know about this one because we never... Ha R2 doesn't actually have that much of a personality in my, mm. in my opinion. Like, he beeps and he boops and that's very fun. Yeah. But he doesn't talk. He thinks R2-D2 is a lesbian. Ooh. Tool belt, always where you need them. I think there's a lot of validity wow. to that. But then I was reading... Shaped like a dental tap. <laughs> Stop it. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, uh, there is a comic, right? Um, in as in like not a comedian comic, but a comic in an art strip, a comic strip, comic strip of R two with like a lady R two D two who's got like weird high heels and is pink. And I was like, this is just this is just heteronormativity gone yeah. wild. That's taking it too far. Where do you even get heels on that robot? I don't know. 
anyway, so I used um, sources from Out Magazine, um, The Gayest Robots of Twitter, uh, sorry, Out, it's Classic Gay Robots, PopCultureExperiment.com, uh, the internet has strong opinions about C3PO and R2D2. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got Fangs of the Fantasy, um, Gay Comic Relief, ski- ScreenRobot.com, Homosexuality Was Always Fodder for Comedy. Uh, quite a lot of articles I, I read on TVTropes.org. Um, and this is actually just from most of my research that I do. I read loads on TV tropes because there's loads of... I, I guess, being a person, we have a pattern-seeking brain and yeah, I often yeah. think, like, is this, a, is this like a thing that I'm seeing, that I'm seeing throughout different shows and TV? An article on Alcatron just called Gay Robot. Gay Robot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, sci-fi interfaces. Um, and I've watched clips of Gay Robot on YouTube. And uh, Paste Magazine, 100, 100 Greatest Movie Robots of All mm-hmm. Time. Okay, so it got me that I've been really thinking about this a lot, okay? Because I've mentioned before that I did a, um, a thesis on robots in film. Yeah. This is for a 50-year period. It was a really poorly thought-out uh, research project, which just let me watch a lot of fu- films <laughs> with robots in it. And <laughs> I watched about 25 different films with robots or robot-adjacent characters in them. Yeah. Okay? So these were also AI, yeah. uh, robots, cyborgs, that kind of thing. And um, I chose the films based on uh, their ratings for different year categories and things like that, okay. basically. So I didn't just pick the ones that I wanted to watch. Um, to. But I lo- what I was looking at was the way the characters talk, interact, and um, are part of the story. You know, what role do they play? Okay. Um, and as I was kind of... When I saw this piece of comedy about the gay robots, I suddenly had, like, a weird moment of, like, watching back in my mind all these reels of robots doing very camp things, and I was like, oh, my God, he's right. It all tracks. It all tracks. So robots and AI... Um, I think, are quite often queer-coded in some way. And I'm not going to look back at the very early origins of what robots were and what they were in film, because um, it goes back a very long way to what... uh, I think it's called Romulus's Universal Robot, which was actually more about a universal worker person, Mm -hmm. a bit like a mindless drone. Um, But it slowly evolved from being kind of an antagonist in a film mm. to being comedy now so okay, it's actually yeah. much more of a like comic relief character and that it's been quite a slow transition but they're you know they're allies and helpers in the way that c3po are now they used to just be um, a lot more akin to i know that these are not the right way around but like terminators yeah um were much more commonly uh, the kind of robot that you'd see. So I've got some examples to begin with. Going to sort of talk about those. Uh, number one um, is just gay robots. Yep. Uh, this is. Do you know? Do you know what gay? No, no. Is? Okay, so it's from an Adam, Adam Sandler sketch, um, developed into a pilot show, and it is so unbelievably offensive. Um, basically, there's this gay robot that's living at university and is unyieldingly horny for football, like no, football like jocks. Uh, jocks. And he's hanging out with all these guys, and like some of the guys, most of the guys are like, "Hey, gay robot, like, what's up?" He doesn't even have a name; he's just called Gay Robot. Oh God! Um, Why and is he, he there? talks with a lisp, and he makes okay. comments to men who like leans in doorways and mm. things. And uh, we watch a lot of buff college dudes like walk slowly towards camera as like Gay Robot is falling in love, and it's very, very obviously. 
queer because he has like a rainbow on his okay. uh, front panel. Okay. So uh, that is just gay robot. There's no yep. subtlety about that. <laughs> um, and that's not really queer coding so much as just queer. Uh, C-3PO, yeah. obviously, is like camp and yeah. sassy, an absolute queen, if ever there was one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he says, there'll be no escape for the princess this time. Um, and C-3PO has a perfectly like mincing walk. Yeah. And part of that is to do with like the way that he's been built, but it is... You know, it's a design choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, Hannah is doing the mincing walk. Oh, yeah, I'm doing uh, the little mincing. Hannah is kind of, yeah, mincing from side to side. Um, and the arms are kind of, yeah, doing the, the up and down robotics, <laughs> but with kind of camp flair. We do think he's a bit of a, uh, I, well, I think there's quite a, quite a fondness for this kind of old queen. Um, I might call him a bit of an auntie, which yeah. is a new slang word that we've learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Anthony Daniels plays C-3PO and he is openly gay. Okay, so he's an openly gay actor, and he was instructed to study Hal's voice for it. So you know Hal 9000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey uh-huh. is my next example. Okay. So he's like, um, so I'm afraid I can't let you do that. It's incredibly like measured, yeah. monotone. Just through line of, yeah, sort of measured. Yeah, okay, exactly. So um, 2001 A Space Odyssey um, is very iconic, and the voice of Hal is attributed is attached to just this red light this like kind of red eye that's mm-hmm. quite evil feeling and unemotional there's a lot written about Hal himself but basically Hal was a bit of a, a kind of origin story for not an origin story that's kind of not it but like a bit of an origin for the idea of the sci-fi AI as incredibly sexless and genderless mm-hmm. so the the voice was done by a Shakespearean actor Douglas Rain um, who had been told to create this voice that was very, very neutral. And apparently Kubrick was just incredibly pleased with the patronising asexual quality, mm-hmm. um, which I also think um, would be like an agender quality. But yeah. they didn't tend to differentiate between sex and gender okay. in language in the 60s. In yeah, the yeah, yeah. Do now. And he says, you know, he's got this kind of lazy, bitchy tone as well. You know, quite honestly, I wouldn't worry myself about that. And um, just very blunt. <laughs> Nonchalant. Howl was actually considered very terrifying, but was the inspiration for uh, the voice of C-3PO. Okay. So it's gone from asexual to, to um, camp. It's I still, guess. yeah, it's still quite authoritative, isn't it, though? It is. He is very authoritative in the sense of, like, persistent um, unyieldingness. Mm. But he doesn't, it's not ever like a raised voice or anything yeah. like that. It's, it's more just like, I'm just not going to do that. Yeah. That's just not going to happen. But it is quite like the villain, yeah, you know, that kind of measured Disney villain, for example. Yeah, and Howl's actually um, so inspired so much sci-fi since, like, this is going on a bit of a a tangent, but have you seen Wall-E? So Wall-E basically is a a film about two robots that fall in love, uh, and they're trying to work out how do they get the people back to Earth because Earth is covered in trash. But what they end up doing is realising that the spaceship has turned against them Mm. and is trying to just keep people in space because it's decided that the uh, Earth is never going to be livable again, Um, which is also a similar theme in 2001 Space Odyssey. But the the ship's steering wheel is the robot that they're against and it has the red eye, exactly as how it's got a very similar but slightly more robotic voice. So it's very neutral, very low. Um, okay, so the next example is K2SO from Rogue One. Have you seen Rogue One? Star Wars. It is a Star Wars one. You're That's right about my that. my knowledge. It's, um, so most of the KX series robots, which he is one of, were effectively um, built as emotionless drones. 
um, and some minor errors and glitches in K2SO's reprogramming let him develop full self-awareness, um, which is uh, unusual to the other drones, but not necessarily unusual to AI characters. But he became cynical, sarcastic, and stoic, <laughs> um, often mentioning that he had calculated poor odds of success. <laughs> so um, he would say, you know, uh, there's a 97.6% chance of failure. Congratulations, you're being <laughs> rescued. Um, all very drawer-like, kind of sassy, patronising way. Yeah. Um, Andy Tudyk was the voice of uh, of K2SO. Okay? okay, you you will know his his voice. He's an okay. incredibly um, successful actor. Does yeah. loads of voice acting and actually also voiced Sonny from iRobot. Okay, also notably asexual and agender. Yeah, and also. Hey, hey, the chicken in Moana. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, oh, I didn't realize they'd have a peep person doing that, but it's, it's Alan Tiddick doing it. His CV is sounds wild. It is honestly <laughs> typecasters robots and then one rogue I went chicken. on his IMDb to like find out what else he'd done, and I was like scrolling for ages and ages through his filmography because he's done so much, really? so much. He's like absolutely amazing. I think he's also in. Maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but I think he's in Tucker and Dale versus Evil, okay. which is a really good uh, horror comedy where he plays a very camp hillbilly who's brought a cabin in the woods to do it. Anyway, Johnny Five from Short Circuit. Again, I'm going to ask, but you probably haven't. Have you seen John, Have you seen Short Circuit? No. It's an 80s film. You probably haven't seen it. It's not great, but it's really funny. The only 80s film I've seen with a with a with a kind of AI robot is Flight of the Navigator. Oh, that is that is very. But good. I that's also a great example. That's red, isn't it? Yeah, he's got a red uh, singular eye yeah. again. But he's also that's Max, I think they Max. call him. Yeah, and he is also very sassy because yeah, yeah, he gives him he, the kid chooses the voice and he becomes this kind of he, slightly he, childish, uh, sarcastic. Yeah, yeah, I he guess start, companion. Yeah, he starts off very kind of monotone, and then the kid uh, says something like, "Can you cheer up or something?" Or like, "Yeah, chill out, man." And he's like, "What is chill out?" Or whatever, whatever it is. Yes, yeah. And then uh, kind of goes through the back catalogue and looks at all the cartoons so that he knows all the kids' references and then adopts all these kind of American 80s slang terms. And it's, yeah, yeah, it's like, really good fun. Bucklehead and all that stuff. is really Bucklehead. Skulls Bucket. Skulls Bucket. Oh anyway. my God, absolutely amazing. So there's Johnny, Johnny Five yep. uh, from Short Circuit is like this one-off, you know, le- quote, legendary robot that has been made and he is wild and sassy and he is disobedient and he has comebacks like hey laser lips your mom was a snowblower and like yeah! absolute like <laughs> real 80s burn and he's also you know real chunky 80s kind of style so he hasn't got the kind of sass of k2so who has okay. a bit of like a hip comes out and yeah. things like that um but very much like a kind of drag queen or king mm-hmm. uh, very self-assured quick with a wit um and and you know doing a little bit it's, it is a bit of a performance yeah. The last example I'm going to use here is one that I don't actually know very well, so I'm just going to quickly brush over it. Um, it's Crichton from Red Dwarf. Um, it's you know Red Dwarf is a, a British space comedy, and it's a very po- camp, polite, English-voiced robot. There's kind of I think there is also a thing where, um, although this is a British show, Americans think that English people sound camp regardless of what we do, <laughs> um, and that's definitely a problem. But basically, it's an English voice. In a similar vein to C-3PO, but a bit gruffer, right? Okay. So it's starting to sound maybe a bit familiar, yeah. right? 
Um, so I do think there's a real theme there. The sidekick robot is the sassy and pr- is sassy and pretty queer coded, especially now. Mm-hmm. Not so much in the past. So they're more. These ones are actually more human than robot now. Yeah. Okay. They're much more. There's a lot more comparison to um, humanity, especially with things like iRobot. Although that was written by Asimov many many years ago. Um, it's you're trying to question something about where does the boundary lie between human and mm. robot, and also the robot is a fun little helper, a bit like the Alexa in our home. And mm-hmm. it's, it's also, in a way, somewhat indicative of how people feel about technology. Yeah. You know, because okay. people are writing the films and the screenplays, yeah. and also the ones that are particularly popular usually resonate the most with people. And so as people become more comfortable with having technology in their homes, mm-hmm. um, the views of robots in the home, uh, sorry, in films are becoming much more um, allied. Mm. So before it might have been kind of maybe tokenized, um, but actually now it, there is a kind of meaningful connection mm. to, yeah. to that technology. Basically, I'm going to ro- argue that the robot sidekick has taken the place of the sassy queer coded gay best friend sidekick. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what I think has happened. Yeah. Um, and you may be familiar with the gay best friend trope, uh, it's well worn. It's tired out. It doesn't age well either. This is the kind of thing that's a bit like um, you. It's very much like played to with David, the only gay in the village. Yeah. Obviously, he's not anybody's psychic, but it's like overly sexualized. Yeah. But with zero sex life. Okay. So always talking about sex. Never has a relationship. And there's like uh, Damien in Mean Girls is an absolute killer part of that. You know, like, yeah. I don't know anything about Damien. No. There's nothing. You don't learn anything about his life. You know about Katie. You know about uh, the other, the Lebanese lady who yeah. uh, does the painting. She's incredibly good at art. And we yeah. know where she works as well. Yeah. But we yeah. never learn anything about Damien because he's just there, like, um, as a sidekick. For the quips. Yeah. He's there for the quips and to be too gay to function. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this was the trope. Uh, it was very much on TV and in film. And it was thought to have resulted mainly from the work of Oscar Wilde. You okay. know, he's incredibly witty and his characters are are kind of a, a lot of them are an embodiment of his wit, you know. Yeah. He plagiarized himself in across his plays and mm-hmm. his books mm-hmm. and everything. But actually the gay the effeminate man, yeah. not necessarily gay as the way that we would understand it now, but the effeminate man has been satired for thousands of years. Yeah. It's been in ancient Greek plays, let's yeah. say. Um, as in it genuinely has been in ancient Greek plays. And the punchline is that they are effeminate, mm-hmm. that they are gay, quote unquote. And they are often, very often given the patterns of speech that are usually attributed attributed to women, mostly vocal fry, uh, which is, you know, alternations in the voice. Yep. But there's, I think it's a bit of a toxic masculinity trait where men just talk in a monotonous kind of in the singular, like, plane. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. women are perceived to have a much more re- higher, like, wider yeah. range yeah. of speech. Um, and the sass usually comes as a secondary bonus mm-hmm. and it's fun. I guess uh, also with the gay best friend, there's they usually actually, yeah. So it, the the sexlessness is key, okay, mm. to the gay best friend, and that translates very well to the robots, um, because yes, it's funny to talk about sex, but nobody wants to see gay people kissing. That's so uncouth. Yeah, there was a, there's a real prudishness yeah. to seeing yeah, gay yeah. or queer people having actual sexual relationships or romantic relationships on screen, um, and they will probably talk a lot about sex or make uh, sexy quotes yeah uh, flirt a lot um, but you'll never actually see them dating or kissing or anything and I 
actually that's kind of something you see with these robots a lot is they all make comments about mm. uh, your mother was a snowblower uh, or like but basically they all make sexual yeah. comebacks yeah. a lot of the time you know why don't you ask your mom um, but they don't ever have sex or, or have sexual feelings it's just kind of that's the humour yeah. um, and it, it would be far too vulgar and it's almost always the camp gay right yeah. so the camp gay is an alternative to the straight gay Mm-hmm. The straight gay is the gay character that is, you know, he's just as good as a straight man, but he just has sex with men. Okay. And there the punchline is that he's gay. Yeah. It's not the effeminateness. Yeah. It's the fact that suddenly they'll turn, like, a woman will ask them out and they'll be like, oh no, I have a boyfriend. And then they'll turn and, like, hold hands with the man. And it's like, what? Yeah. That's the punchline. Whereas the other one is just, like, is it Will and Grace? Will? Yeah. The, the effeminate one is yeah, just the so much campy. More... That's just. We just laugh about the fact that he is camp. Yeah, because nothing's hidden. It's it's the campness, you know, with a capital C that is, like, yeah, ch- yeah. That's the that is the the known quality of that character. Yeah, and they own it um, almost, in a very proud way. In a proud way, but also you don't when they're written by non queer people. There's almost nothing more to them. Yeah. Than the campness, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? It'll be very obvious, but not very deep. Yeah. And so as it has become less and less acceptable for the gay man to be the butt of all jokes, and people are still still people are actually instead asking for deeper stories about their queer characters, the stock sassy sidekick um, has become much less desired, okay? Um, sorry, much less uh, acceptable, but still desired. Okay. Okay, so people do need do want comic relief. They want comic relief, especially in um, more difficult shows or when they're having a, a difficult conversation. You have the sassy person come in and make a quick quip, yeah. break the tension. Um, but what have I written? I've written here something about Batman. Every Batman needs a Robin. Um, who simply ex- the B- Robin simply exists to support the main character, and the gay best friend did used to s- simply mm. exist to support the main character. Okay. And what I'm saying is that the sexless, sassy sidekick is now played by a robot that mm. supports the main character because they're created with the explicit purpose to support the main yeah. character and so you can't really argue with that they don't need a background yeah. they don't yeah, yeah, need yeah. their own life story because they're a robot so instead of actually you know creating deep and meaningful uh, characters uh, supporting roles they've just they've just gone oh we can just use robots yeah just use robots because then you can Done. just make them have all the queer like sassiness yeah we don't like have a drag to queen, but it's just a robot and so like no yeah. one can get offended by that because it's a robot. <laughs> um, so, uh, what have I written here? Queenie. Uh, I think the robot characters are genuinely purposefully queer-coded, though. And I do think it's... it's mm. uh, The asexuality, I think, is like a byproduct. Like, yeah. they kind of... They haven't really thought about it enough. Yeah. Um, because especially if you look at, like, Futurama, the robots have sex all the time. Um, <laughs> but the, it's the kind of... Um, the sassiness, the kind of... Um, queenness of it mm. the not wanting to do the dirty business of humans that they, they find funny um, and that they're coded as these these sexless d- gays I've written daddy-o for some reason in this in the middle of this script I think I just get really high on coffee and I'm just like <laughs> you dig daddy-o you dig um, so uh, just before I kind of I got like a little bit of a, a postscript here but mm. w- what like what are your thoughts on this this I mean this might it feels really dark to mm. me yeah uh, it feels incredibly dark that you know the that they've had to you know force the kind of superficial kind of queer camp like traits of a character into something lifeless and not shallow but yeah something that deliberately lacks depth yeah and 
kind of shoehorning it away from ever creating something of impact and meaningful. Like, instead of creating rounded queer characters, it's just they've kind of... the get out of jail free card. And associating queerness with the non-human I find very troubling yeah that is really troubling and it's also like instead of getting better script writers better joke writers yeah they've just what I have this kind of image in my head of someone like just ripping down uh this queer character just to the very basic basic elements of gay is funny yeah camp is funny yeah and then I don't understand anything else I'm not allowed to make that a gay person now so if I just create that into a a personality, which is quote unquote what AI is, it's yeah. just like the artificial intelligence. It's just a personality. Just connecting the dots, yeah. And then I don't have to do anything more. Yeah, That's I don't. That. I can still use all my stock jokes I've got in the back. It's kind of laziness because you don't have to re- you don't have to create anything new. You don't have to understand and do any research. It's mm. just yeah, rehashing all the old tropes and getting away with it. Yeah, it really is. But and yeah, I, I do think I do think there's a there's a, a really um, important message there about like. The, the need for rounded characters and not just being lazy with with the joke mm. like I when I when I watch Gay Robot I'm gonna get you to watch it actually I might put a link to it it's it's so bad yeah it's it, honestly um but I do like so this last little bit is like I, it's heavily sexist yeah as well this is incredibly sexist yeah because even though they say they're sexless and genderless there is this real link between um women and subservience and effeminate men and and womanhood Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. so there's a reason that um like alexa has a woman's voice yeah and also some people don't won't listen to their sat nav if it's got a woman's voice yeah yeah yeah. they change it to a man because otherwise they don't feel like it's right yeah Um, like it can't possibly be in the next left she's mad she's insane um my dad does it too but i don't i don't know how much of that is just that he doesn't know how technology works or how much of it is that he's sexist because he does mm. try to make me and my mum read maps okay he doesn't know where he is but he's just like Satnav can't possibly know yeah how does it know where i am and i'm like it's just he science. could be anti anti-tech as well as you know a little bit sexist. A lot of things. he's just an old man is what it is <laughs> um so yeah there's a real similar way in the way uh the way in which the ai is a kind of a subservient woman character mm. but uh to use the kind of stock jokes of the effeminate man, that really overlaps for them. Because yeah. the, the reason they think effeminate men are funny is because they're, quote, men acting like women. Yeah, lesser. And, and lesser than the macho or just like uh, n- normal men. Yeah. Normal men. They're yeah, not yeah, like yeah. normal men. They're camp and they're womanly. And yeah. that's the joke. And that's where I think those two kind of collide. And there's this belief that, yes, they're effeminate and lesser than men, and so let's make it a robot because that's a subservient, effeminate servant. Mm. Um, They also usually have a gentle, soft-spoken, kind of higher-pitched voice, you'll often see, especially if they are the, um, not the protagonist, but the ally. And they have a deeper, more manly voice if they are the antagonist. So, yeah, it's just, I think it's sexist and it's homophobic. It is homophobic. You know, queer people are perpetually othered. Perpe- like perpetually othered yeah and this is just reinforcing that it feels so wild that it's like obviously things like 2001 space odyssey the original star wars were so long ago so long ago that it's almost like there it's you know uh what 50 years ago more than that mm-hmm. uh, that's a lifetime really yeah but Cave, like in Rogue One, that came out just a few years ago. Yeah, and it still heavily played into these camp not, queer roles. Yeah, and they're not calling up. Um, yeah, the guy who voiced um, C three PO, 
Um, they're not calling him up to play Luke Skywalker. And they never will be. No. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. because of how his voice sounds and what that represents yeah. for the film industry. Yeah. That was he's a wild not... statement, but Well, it's just a it. bit like, he, he's not got the kind of uh, deep authoritative... He, he probably has range, let's say that. Yeah, but like, definitely. He, um, he doesn't have... In, as that character, it's not the deep authoritative voice of a lead character. It's the soft, gentle, subservient voice of the uh, supporting role. Yeah. You know? This is, uh, I think, more my level is uh, Brave Little Toaster, to be honest. Oh, my God. Because he's soft and, and still is the is the main character. He's um, the protagonist. Yeah, it's just... Technically a robot, more of an appliance. <laughs> I mean, they're both. <laughs> Alexa's a robot and an appliance, it's true. I would argue. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's that's basically all, that, all I've got you. on that. And I just... My mind was blown. Yeah. That's why I was so excited. Um, I might actually genuinely just pause it here and get you to watch Gay Robot. Yep. Okay. Okay, so for this month's episode, uh, I wanted to give a bit of an artist profile. Um, mm. You probably have seen my script. Um, I haven't. I, I looked towards your screen and just wasn't reading. Okay. Okay, I promise. It's, uh, it's someone we've spoken about um, off air. Uh, it's a great illustrator and children's book writer, Tove Janssen, um, who is... Swedish? The- uh, no. Finnish. Finnish. Or Finnish. Yeah, the creator yes! of the Moomins. Oh my god, um, Tove. The Moomins have such a rich uh, history and a yes. really interesting world, and there's a lot of, um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of crossover with queerness. Um, I love this. As I well as this. her life um, as, a, as a lesbian. Um, yeah, I, I knew she was a lesbian, yeah. So, some of my sources, uh, obviously, Moomin.com. Obviously, Moomin.com. <laughs> obviously. Uh, BBC News article. Um, Tove Janssen, Love War and the Moomins. Mm-hmm. Um, Tovejansen.com, Tovepedia, um, and a queer feminist icon, Tove Janssen and the Moomins, books that matter.co.uk. Love it. Love um, it. Yeah, I thought I'd do a bit of an artist profile. I really like doing the artist profile kind of deep dive and yeah. finding out a bit about their lives, um, you know, a- a- around something you know some kind of creation that is really iconic and a huge part of like especially like childhood or you know pop culture or something like that yeah yeah um so tove is obviously best known for her creation of the moomins um which if you don't know are a delightful cartoon adored by children and adults around the world the world Um, over the world over so fun fact i actually refer to my mum as moomin affectionately um, but she didn't know that Moomins, <laughs> the Moomins was a thing. She didn't she... know what a Moomin was. Uh, she just thought it was a kind of <laughs> cute, you know, name. cute term of endearment. Um, and she was kind of mildly taken aback when she actually like Googled, um, you know, figured out that it was that kind of troll, basically, mm. like a kind of hippo troll. Um, and she was very upset by that. Um, mm. But I think Moomins are great. And I've had, yeah, little kind of Moomin figurines of um, since a very young age. Um and the beloved Moomin Troll universe and the adventures of these really like heartwarming creatures have like just completely captivated um, audiences. It was a very much a like staple in every kind of Finnish and Swedish home. And copies of the books have sold in their millions, and it's been translated into like fifty languages, um, which makes her one of the most successful children's authors ever, mm. like of all time. Um, That's incredible. Did you? I'm just having a bit of a flashback. Did you mention her also in your cartoons, get queer cartoons episode? I don't know if I may be in passing, yeah. so I'm going to do a bit let's of a, do, yeah, let's a bit more of a deep dive. Um, so she wasn't just a cartoonist, mm. um, although the Moomins did take up like a huge chunk of her life, and she didn't, she didn't have much time for anything else. Although she did have a kind of quite a, a prolific career before then. Yeah, she she grew up in a um, 
yeah, a family of artists. But basically, she she created the movements because she wanted to make this um, this kind of new world, kind mm-hmm. of a, a newfound reality, which I think is really queer. Like yeah. this kind of way of escaping um, the kind of doom and gloom of everyday life, which for Toe Janssen uh, was the shadow of World War Two. Yeah. So pretty big thing to when, be trying to so escape from. How old was she? Uh, so ha- when was she born? Do we do you know? Um, trying to get an idea of like what she would have grown up through and and I will tell you. Um, so she was born in nineteen fourteen. Okay, okay. So she grew up at the end of the first world war. Yeah. So, so much of her kind of when her career as an illustrator was starting, and as, certainly when she started writing books, she she started writing books from a really young age, which some of which she published, yeah. um, which I'll come on to. But yeah, so she totally understandable that she the second world war was the kind of big influence of what um, over the content of what was in the books. Yeah. Damn. Um. So she wrote in her diary that she she dreamt of creating a happy society, another world, mm. um, something very far from the terrifying uh, world of war, which was kind of surrounding her and kind of consuming her family. Um, and Moomin Valley and the kind of wider world of the Moomins was this kind of idyllic um, fantasy, basically. Um, and it is very fantastical, but it you know it also is very rooted in darkness and struggle. And the very and the kind of first two or three early books are quite dark for okay. children's books. Mm. Um, the topics approached are really heavy. You know, there's there's loss, separation, yeah. uh, isolation, anxiety, grief, leaving oh. home, like all these really strong... You know, it's not a walk in the park, basically. Yeah. Um, but there is this kind of uh, relentless hope and humbleness to the Moomins and the Moomin characters as they kind of they journey on... Yeah. They they struggle through these kind of adverse conditions. They keep going, and they chase the small joys and the Aww. simpler things in life. You know, friendship, peacefulness, uh, a good cup of coffee, and uh, pancakes made just right. Oh. Which I'm like, yep, I'm down. I'm yep, down for that. Absolutely. So as I said, uh, Tove grew up in a family of artists. Her mother was an illustrator, mm-hmm. um, and she would kind of paint beside her and draw beside her. Um, and her father was a sculptor, so very kind wow, of hands-on, yeah. practical um, artists. And as a child, Tove wrote many stories which she would illustrate herself. Um, and she was like already a very talented drawer, a terrific storyteller, um, and even managed to sell one of her very early um, stories to a publisher, which she wrote when she was just 13. Oh. So already making waves. Um, the book is called Sarah and Pele. Uh, Sarah and Pele. Um, and the Octopuses of the Water Sprite, uh, which was published in 1933 under the alias uh, Vera Hay. Um, Vera Hay. Um, you can look up the cover of the book, um, which I'm gonna actually just show you. Um, it's it's that um, for oh, a very small. That's so cute. Um, so you've got these uh, quite queer coded um, characters on the front. Um, if you can look up the book's cover, uh, Sarah uh, Sarah and Pele and the Octopus of the Water Sprite, um, you will see the fi- the main characters who are wearing like the most queer outfits. Like yeah, I'm pretty sure I've seen. It's like a kind of brown patch. Uh, Boiler suit, short sleeved, could be from Lucy and Yak right. this week. Like, like a bit gender um, ambiguous. Yeah, and there's like a kind of a femme and an MB basically fighting perilous sea creatures. What's not to love? Um, love it. Yeah, so her mother, um, so Tove's mother worked um, for a satire magazine called Garm, mm-hmm. um, for which Tove started publishing her own drawings. So they both worked at the same magazines. Um, and Tove started publishing in 1928, and for a long time that was her main source of income. So she was financially independent from illustration alone, which is really cool. That is incredible, almost impossible now. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and this was in the 1920s, so really cool. Um, 
And while at Garm, uh, Janssen drew over 500 caricatures amongst kind of other illustrations. She did some cover art, um, 100 cover images. And yeah, the magazine was really political and it was quite like highly charged political, mm. um, hugely critical of fascism. And um, yeah, I mean, she would kind of paint quite freely and draw freely, lots of kind of bold, bright colours. Mm. Um, and wasn't afraid to kind of be, you know, quite controversial. And, Ooh, and she, she was, was often allowed to be for that kind of magazine. Yeah, exactly. That's really cool. And she kind of really pushed the boundaries, and people kind of scolded her sometimes. You know, there was a lot of criticism for some of her um, caricatures of Stalin and Hitler, and um, yeah. But she would always sign it with her own name. You know, didn't give a didn't give a hoot. Was just like, yep, that's Hitler drawn in a really non flattering way. Oh. Whatever, of yours. Compromising? No. <laughs> Compromising <laughs> positions. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Um, and in the early 1940s, the first Moomin appeared mm-hmm. uh, within the pages of this magazine. Oh. So it was tucked away in a caricature of Hitler. Um, and it was, yeah, this this small chubby animal with the tassel tail peeking out shyly from behind the lettering right next to Tobe's signature. And that was the first time the Moomin had kind of been in print. That's ever. really cool. Really cool. Um, just kind of looking over, not really related to the yeah. caricature of Hitler in any way. Just Almost kind of peeking part of the out. signature. Yeah, part of the like, signature. Yeah. Kind of behind the um, the lettering of the magazine name. So aside from her traditional paintings, Tove uh, created quite high profile work for public spaces, um, mm-hmm. uh, such as painting um, the 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 painting behind the altar in um, a church in uh, Tuva in Finland, mm-hmm. as well as uh, the restaurant frescoes of the Helsinki City Hall. So some quite big. Um, yeah, public art pieces. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the real breakthrough of her career um, as an artist has got, has got to be the Moomins. Like, this oh, is what definitely. we know her for. Yeah. Um, I'm sure the altar painting is lovely. <laughs> um, so the first book of which she published in 1945, um, titled The Moomins and the Great Flood. Quite yeah. a gloomy, quite a gloomy narrative for a children's Spooky. book. Spooky. Uh, yeah, Almost. fairly big, yeah. biblical, yeah. I mean, so Moomin Troll and Moomin Mama are kind of wandering, the, yeah, wandering this really treacherous path. I have a question. Of, Yes. Do they all have Moomin in front of their names? So Moomin Papa, yes. Moomin Troll. Um, not Moomin all of them. Mama. There's a Moomin Mama. They're the kind of three core family members. Okay. And they have a lot of um, kind of, yeah, sidekicks and side characters who also form part of this um, universe. But they don't have Moomin in front of their names? No. So they'll be okay. like Little Mai, Snufkin, Snork Maiden. Of course. Of course. <laughs> of course they'd be called that. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> So only the Moomins, which are the kind of that shape. Right. Of the kind of, you know, hippo troll shape. That family. The Moomin have, Troll. Yeah. That's their naming convention. Yeah. Got it. Exactly. Um, and you'll be able to tell Moom and Papa and Moom and Mama because they have... Um, I'm sure I've seen them before. Moom and Papa has a top hat. And Moom and Mama has an apron on? Exactly. Yeah, I've seen, <laughs> I've seen them. And Moom and Troll is just totally naked wandering around the forest. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway. It's not okay. So it's not okay. But they're walking, um, they're walking around this kind of damp, uh, damp, damp, dank, dense forest. Spooky. Um, the 3Ds. And uh, they're looking for a new home um, because their other one has been sort of swept away and they're kind of, they do a lot of uh, sailing and things like that um and they're very yeah they've been displaced which is a pretty dark narrative um mm. for for yeah, a children's book to the end of the world war yep displaced peoples yep uh, very much so um and the key thing is that they are helped by the other creatures that they meet um along their way and they they in turn go out of their way to help others um and eventually sort of down to good friends and true and that true hope um, which is the kind of key through line through the books. Uh, the Moomins do overcome their hardships, and they eventually find uh, Moomin Papa, who was missing from the Great Flood. Um, so it always has a happy ending. Key, key when you're talking about dark, kids dark book story. Yeah, kid book. Yeah, it exactly. Ha- it's got to have a good happy ending. 
and also that sound they sound uh very resilient yeah you know you just keep going and you will find yeah the new cover yeah and they home. exactly and they get you know the flood comes they they find a boat they build a boat they get on the boat everybody gets on the boat with them everything you know they they grab a suitcase and they're gone and there is you know tremendous strength and bravery in these cute strange little hippo trolls yeah um so world war Two, um it had a huge impact on tove and she spent many of those really dark years in a quite a you know all-consuming rut of gloom and, and severe anxiety mm. which definitely comes out in the books yeah. um one of her brothers, uh, Per Olov, uh, was away fighting, and um, nobody in the family knew where he was. Nobody had heard from him. They didn't know if he was dead or alive. Um, and so this this crippling anxiety had a huge effect on Tobe's work, and it was it was it was fairly dark. It's fairly obviously dark throughout the books. Um, but in the middle of this kind of pit of despair, there is a light, mm. basically, and she decided to create something bright from that light. Uh, and you know something to do with kindness and support of others um, yeah and it had and it had to have a happy ending and that's yeah. where the Moomins sprung from um, so her second book Comet in Moominland mm-hmm. um, not getting any better uh, first a flood then a comet yeah uh, again was very biblical very biblical yeah that's, that was in 1946 uh, a year after the Moomins and the Great Flood um, so general mood of kind of looming despair, devastating events certainly hasn't gone away. Um, in fact, it's actually escalated. So oh this God. time it's not kind of a natural um, disaster. It's like a comet is coming from like outer space. The one that killed all them dinosaurs. Yeah, exactly. It's going to obliterate planet Earth. Shitting hell. Um, so huge shitting hell. A huge impending disaster <laughs> is still approaching. This time a comet, and Moomin Troll and Moomin Rommel. I think it's Snufkin. Oh. Um, which one is Snufkin? It's the kind of looks a bit like an anteater kind of mousy this kind of kangaroo about. I just Sniff? know that there's that Snuffkin. one girl that looks really bad there's, that's little Mai okay yeah Mai. Okay. Um, kind of little red dress with a kind of really tight bun yes um, but this is not this is the kind of um, creature another friend yeah kind of uh, um, what are they called when they're like a kangaroo marsupial um uh, yeah or mm-hmm. a wombat or a wallaby kind of a wallaby kind yeah. of long nose uh, fantastical Some, being sure um, and they're desperately trying to understand if like, they go to the observatory, they're like, is it coming for our home? Are we going to be blown into tiny bits? Um, and there's this feeling of utter helplessness and the characters flee their home as a result, which echoes the behaviour of many uh, despairing families during uh, the Helsing- Helsinki bombings and the war in general across the world. Mm. Lots of displaced families. Um, so the first two books are very dark. Uh, and it wasn't until the 1950s uh, that the Moomins really took off uh, and the the lighter tones of the third book, Finn Family Moomin Troll, mm-hmm. laid the foundations for what would just become a very charming and magical tale overall. Okay. So the kind of the first ones weren't very popular. They weren't yeah. hugely, like... Maybe a, lot, a bit, bit not, much. Maybe a bit much, not a lot of commercial success. Um, also uh, published at a time when people were very poor as well. Mm, yeah. They not have had the income to buy a book. This is true. So the nineteen, yes, yeah, so the third book, it was uh, just a lot lighter, and so that was a lot more uh, palatable. Mm. And uh, the story was lapped up by families across Finland and Sweden, and became just a household staple. Like every home would have a copy of Finn Family Movement Troll. Amazing. Um, and this is where it gets interesting, okay, uh, from a queer perspective. Okay, got it. Okay, so during this time, Tove was in a relationship uh, with the actress Vivika Badler, uh, who went on later to stage 
all of the performances, theatrical performances featuring Moomins. So, like, she was just like, got it covered. I'll do all the theatre with Moomins. Um, not sure whether that was through costume or interpretive dance, but yeah. um, she, but was, she like, was like, I've got it covered. Somehow she's got it yeah. all covered. Um, but seeing as lesbian relationships were illegal in Finland at this time, Ooh. and at most of the world, in fact, sure. um, yeah, homosexuality was still actually classified as an illness in Finland. So the couple sort of, you know, they had to be quite subtle and they, they invented, uh, in real life, the couple invented a secret language mm-hmm. um, as well as code names uh, for each other in order to kind of continue their romances undetected. Um, very similar to like Polari or like yeah, how yeah. gay men were operating at the same time um, in the UK and in America. Um, so some of these uh, kind of secret languages and things like that and code names found their way into the books. Mm-hmm. Um and Tove expressed her feelings for Vi- Vivica um, in a in a pair of mysterious travellers named Thingamy and Bob. I don't know if That's you've cute. heard of no, them. No, I haven't heard of them. Thingamy and Bob, who speak in an un- incomprehensible language. Amazing. Um, and they always hold hands oh my God. wherever they go. Um, and they carry with them this, this suitcase. Mm. And they never open it. And they never tell anyone what's inside. Okay. Um, but they protect it. They guard always. it. Yeah, always. They, it goes with them everywhere and they never open it. Mm-hmm. And no one else is allowed to take it or touch mm-hmm. it or look in it. Um, its precious secret contents are a mystery. And at the end of the book, it's revealed that in the suitcase is, in fact, um, a shining gemstone, a kind of a large uh, king's ruby, which is taken to mean a red ruby, you know, to be a symbol of the love that Tove shared with Vivica. Um, which also had to be carefully hidden. So it's all yeah. these like lovely metaphors. Um very beautiful story, very nice. Um, so then in 1946, Tove wrote to a friend that she'd fallen madly in love with a woman, uh, saying in the letter, it seems to me so absolutely natural and genuine, I just feel proud and uncontrollably glad. Mm. So even at the risk of, of criminal, criminal convictions, um, Tove and Vivica lived together quite happily during this time. Um, so maybe that's why the those books were a bit lighter. She was just having yeah. a nice time. Yeah, maybe. Having a laughy time. Buoyed by love. Yeah, and so I think so. I think there is quite a lot of um, connection between uh, the, the hospitality of the Moomins as a family and, and the queer community. Um, it's a very open household. Uh, basically, yeah, the family... Uh, yeah, they look, af- they look after everybody who visits. And um, in, in, in kind of the later books, there's like as soon as somebody says that they might need to stay for longer than dinner there's this immediate talk of oh you must move in and we'll build we'll build a bed for you and oh my god we have to extend the dinner table permanently and it's very That's like very come in come in keep yeah, coming yeah, yeah. um which i think is is very queer you know um yeah the needing to to um make everyone family yeah make everybody part of the family um and immediately like a sense of kind of home even in this kind of yeah, I mean, so queerness for me is a very kind of transient world made up of very like found friends and chosen family, and you don't you don't just stay for dinner. You do move in. Mm. Inside, you have an impact. There's this kind of lasting impact of all the characters, even if they, um, you know, come and go throughout the books. They're always still there, and they, you know, these characters do make a huge impact on the the audiences and the readership as well. Yeah. Um. So her first cartoon story, um. Moomin Troll and the End of the World. Very cheery titles all the time. Mm, absolutely love it. Was serialised in 1947 to 1948 um, in the left-wing periodical Nighted. And by the mid-50s, uh, the Moomins were drawing quite a lot of attention, basically. And Tove was approached by a London agent 
who commissioned her to create a comic strip for the highest circulation newspaper in the t- at the time, The Evening News. Ooh. So that was six columns a week. Uh, she got Sundays so off. So, yeah, six a week um, from 1954 to 1961. And, for, you know, for London, for a London newspaper, it was a real big deal. And it was life-changing. And it gave her complete financial security, um, which she needed, um, you know, after kind of devastations of war and all that. Yeah, um, and also at the time, independence from a man, which yeah. wouldn't have been easy yeah. in the sixties and fifties. I don't think you could even have a bank account really as a woman. Mm. Anyway, so that was it. Was awesome, and she's like an absolute um, well feminist her. powerhouse. Fuck yeah, um, and people really like these comic strips because they're very playful, um, and the characters, you know, they kind of break out of their frames, and yeah, she wouldn't kind of follow conventions basically. Um, and they were published in in forty countries and and reached twenty over twenty million readers, which is Damn. a huge amount. Um, yeah, that's so many. And around this time, Walt Disney got in touch and was like, "Hey, I'd like the rights to yeah. make an adaptation of the Moomins," and uh, she declined. She was like, "No, no, bye bye, bye bye, Walt. <laughs> nice try." Um, and the Moomins, because it's so financially successful, like mm. commercially around the world, like the Moomin shop and all the like the yeah. merch and the paraphernalia. She would have lost control of it if if it had gone to Disney. She wouldn't have been able to keep it as her thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She yeah. would have just changed it completely. She was, Good I mean, her. yeah, she was a real fierce feminist. Um, above all, um, she wasn't just like a sweet kind of illustrator. She was a huge feminist. Um. And, you know, some of her bold personality is captured in, in the character of Little Maya, who we mentioned, mm. um, who's really stubborn and very competitive. Um, and she's a friend of Moomin Troll who kind of, she's always challenging him and kind of telling him off and things like that, which is really <laughs> sweet. Um, and we've got some other standout female characters in the series. Um, Snork Maiden, who is, is very smart, very brave, um, but also adventurous, not just kind of stay at home and kind of Looks worry. Smart, yeah. yeah, yeah, very, very brave. And they were very practical um and you know but also driven by compassion um and always there to give advice when when snufkin and, and moomin troll are kind of really enthusiastic and kind of le- getting led astray by you know the excitement of the forest or whatever <laughs> um so yeah so so tove's stamina for the moomins was uh the moomin marathon was was pretty exhausting and yeah. six strips six comic strips a week just sounds like a lot and it left barely any time for her other artistic pursuits um she wasn't writing as much she wasn't creating other kind of paintings as much um she had a studio that she 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 worked in for like most of her life um but yeah she often writes quite unfavorably about the moomins um in her personal diary and she's like you know this godforsaken troll and all this kind of stuff yeah um so, and then, so she was kind of running out of steam a bit, and the stories once again grew darker and and deeper, and this kind of existential crisis had had somewhat returned, um, and the stories became very personal, like unquestionably resembling her life, mm. and um, fortunate and like her and like her mother and any kind of family hard- hardships that were had at the time, but fortunately uh, she had a new she met a new muse in uh, 1956 Ooh. who provided a new fountain of inspiration of let's say thank Release god life. Uh, it was a fellow artist um tuliki pietilia um Pitilla, i'm gonna say mm. um and i believe you yeah your swedish is probably far better than mine um is it a swedish person you should know uh another yeah another artist um i think yeah but they were operating in finland um i will look up where she's from um, but this is who, yeah, 
Tuliki often um, is referred to as um, uh, Tuli um, in kind of Tuli. yeah Tuli in kind of the personal memoirs and diaries, um, and this is whom she would spend the rest of her life with. And they used to go off kind of sailing and exploring the islands in Finland because that was quite common. Like yeah. you just have a little boat and you kind of troll around over summer's troll. Anyway. <laughs> um, and so in Moominland midwinter, um, when it is time for the winter sleep, of course Moomin Troll finds that he is awake and unable to sleep. Um, which echoes, you know, obviously the despair in her earlier books. Um, the world around him is, is somehow dark and unfamiliar and... The sun never comes up and Moomin Troll feels lost. So this is like maybe her personal struggles with, again, anxiety, depression. But fortunately, he meets um, this kind spirit called Too Tiki, which is obviously obviously modelled on uh, Tuli. Um, and and Too Tiki sings to Moomin Troll and feeds him delicious soup. And um, it's just lovely. And the entire book is kind of more or less dedicated to the love and friendship that she shared with Tove and to... to Tutuliki and and their their friendship and their love and it's really lovely so the penultimate book um Jansen's penultimate book uh, Notes from an Island um which is not from the Moomin series um it was published only last year in English um which is her only full-length work of non-fiction and it was written as she turned 80 and it's illustrated with etchings from uh, from Thule um, and so she's always kind of collaborating with uh, with these other artists, especially the ones who she's got, um, you know, intimate relationships with. And um, yeah, it offers a very kind of personal and moving um, homage to the barren island of uh, Clove Haran uh, that she and Tuli found in search of greater privacy. So they were already on an island having a holiday and they went searching off on their boat for somewhere even more remote and they found mm. it in this island. Um, and then they they returned for 26 summers wow. which is so beautiful and that's how they spent their life uh, basically yeah. until they were no longer able to maintain the kind of very it's a very basic house um you know it's just kind of a very brick and mortar mm. um and they weren't able to sail, sail the old boat between the islands um but it sounds really idyllic and just a lovely way to see out their old older years and i'm gonna leave it there um that's so beautiful. because there is there's so much more to say and her life was really incredible mm. um and most of her works, but especially the Moomins, um, just advocate advocate for us appreciating the small things in life. Yeah. Uh, good coffee, time in nature, very Absolutely. queer, uh, and the company of friends. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to to end this kind of series on as well. Yeah. Um, and talk about what a beautiful yeah. Beautiful message and what a beautiful life legacy actually. Yeah, and I think it is a very queer topic to just to really hone in on those small joys mm. of life. Um. And the things that you can control, you know, you can control the way your pancakes come out most of the time. Mm -hmm. And you can be kind and show compassion and empathy and be welcoming. And yeah, yeah, that's how I I would like to be more Moomin, to be honest. Be more Moomin. I think we need that in this day more than ever. Well, you know, as much as ever. Yeah. We need to be kind and welcoming to those around us. And yeah, what a beautiful life. Love and queer joy. Exactly. So I guess this is the end of the season. Yeah. It's going to be a while before we have another episode, but like like we said, you can catch us, uh, I guess, on Radio Zaddy on Instagram yeah. and Twitter anyway. If you want to chat, catch up, ask us what you want to uh, hear in the next season, but also have a listen to our radio show on Queer Cambridge uh, 105 Radio on Mixcloud. And thank you for listening. Thank you very much. Bye.